0: Good morning we were just trying to cool new sound technique out put a little reverb on me you know and so you know we just want to be a little cooler sometimes and it it doesn't always work no just kidding so I think there's a set of questions we live by and a single question that could be super helpful for your life so here are the questions you and I live by how much can I get away with Where is the line where I'm okay and the line where, okay, that's sin? Or questions like, how can I change them? Have you ever asked that question? What is it going to take to change you people? Because obviously I'm, you know, great and right and perfect. How can I change my circumstances, my work, my whatever? How do I change out there? And so we live by these set of questions. Where's the line? How do I change that stuff? I want to give you a new question. A question that's been rattling around in, in my mind a lot lately. And it's this. A foundational transformative question for your life. Does it honor the Lord? How can I honor the Lord? And then all of a sudden, I can still be in a relationship with a lot of challenges. How do I honor the Lord? I, I can wonder can i drink or not drink does it honor the lord can i drink two and not one does it honor the lord can i look in the mirror and look at myself and like what i'm wearing what does it honor the lord is what i'm about to say to my friend to my spouse or to my kids does it honor the lord how do i honor the lord in this circumstance in this situation and you can see how that changes everything because now i'm not powerless change them, fix that, have no clue where the line is, I'm empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit to take responsibility to honor the Lord in whatever he ordains for me. We're going to talk more about that today as we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. And this will be our last one in Hebrews. We'll be getting into Thanksgiving and then missions and Christmas and until the new year. And so I think it's a great one uh, to leave off on. It's one that challenges us to have the kind of faith to live a life that pleases the Lord. And so we've been walking through Hebrews and the theme over and over and over again has been Jesus is better, Jesus is wonderful, Jesus is treasure, Jesus is worth it, Jesus is glorious. How insane would it be for me to go anywhere else? How insane would it be for me to try another option out? How insane would it be to not run with him and press on to maturity. Like It makes no sense if Jesus is this wonderful. And he is this wonderful. It's been the point of the book. All right, so we've turned a corner. We're into Hebrews chapter 11 now. Uh, and it's built off of the last statement of chapter 10. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's a kind of people we don't belong to. But there's a whole other kind of people. There's a whole other lineage. And it's the lineage of, of faith people. We're the of faith people. And and. We need some tangible examples because we don't see that super well. We need some tangible examples because of faith, people may not mean a lot to us. And so chapter 11 is the hall of faith where it's person after person after person that demonstrates a life of faithfulness because they're faith people. And we can look at their example and be summoned to their kind of faith. But the difference is if you were to read the end of chapter 11, they did everything we read about and never received the promise of Jesus Christ. And so how much more can we be summoned to this kind of faith and this kind of faithfulness when we have the promise that they so eagerly look for? We have Jesus Christ. And so we're transitioning to the second set of people that are by-faith kind of people. Last week, we looked at faith's definition. Faith takes your life and your circumstances and your pain even, and that shrinks you down to the view the size of your problem faith expands it to the size of eternity and all the eternal promises of god that are in the future come into your present reality, and those are the backdrop for what you face. Faith opens up this whole unseen realm called the spiritual world that's real, where God is and God works, and it puts that in the background of your circumstances, so you don't have to shrink to the size of your problems. You can grow to the size of a God who is active in your life and active in the world and promised better things ahead. And he transitions, and he talked about, it's a faith statement to believe For us to believe God created the world and everything in it out of nothing. God created the world the way Genesis 1 says God created the world. That is a faith statement. Now, I don't need a logical or rational explanation for it. Because God said it and I believe it. Just like God said Jesus lived, died, and rose again for the particular purpose of dying for your sins. Rising again to offer you new life. That's a faith statement. But, as we... I mean, we don't look at a lot, but it is a reasonable faith. It is not as if it's absent evidence. Right? It's not as if it's absent any rational thought. It's a rational faith, but it ultimately is a faith statement. And so, you could go to great philosophers first, and they would talk to you about having to go all the way back, and at some point, there had to be an uncaused cause for everything that is. Like Nothing is eternal. Nothing was there at some point, and so something had to be there to cause everything that is. And so there is a very valid view for the existence of a designer, a creator. And on top of that, there has to be an explanation for how infinitely intricate the world is wired to support life. I can't go into all the details of that, but for the, for the planet we live on to support life, there are millions of variables that have to exist for us to keep living and breathing. And they exist because you're living and you're breathing. Uh, never can life come out of non-life. Intelligence and rationality come from non-intelligence and non-rationality. Like We can go through these philosophical arguments, but that's not our basis. In Genesis chapter 1, it is written down for us that God spoke and nothing became something. And then God filled it and beautified it and and fitted it for our existence. By faith, we believe that. We're going to the next set of by faiths today. And you're going to meet, meet two interesting characters. You're going to meet the first guy to die by murder and die. And you're going to meet the first guy that never died and had to experience death. So let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And, though his fa- and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, And he was not found because the Lord had taken him. Now before he was taken, he he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that your word would be living and active and powerful today. You promise it is. You promise it doesn't return void. Lord, how weak are my words and how mighty are yours. How utterly dependent I am to have any value and how infinitely worthy and valuable you are. I pray that you would speak a word of grace and life and strengthening and hope and transformation into the heart and to the soul of your people today. I pray you'd call the dead to life today. I pray you'd call the asleep to be awake today. I pray that you would enlarge our hearts to run the course of your commandments. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So faith is essential to a life that pleases God. Faith is essential to a life that pleases God. By it, by faith, we see the sacrifice that makes us righteous. By faith, we see the sacrifice that makes us righteous now this is my new favorite quote so if i've told you it before that's good it's my favorite i'm gonna tell you it again if you hadn't heard it yet you're going to get to hear it now we do what we do because we want what we want we do what we do because we want what we want uh brent some you know yankee name o'quinn or something i don't know how to pronounce it uh, so we do what we do because we want what we want chris changes it just slightly we do what we do because we worship what we worship And so our wants and our worship will always determine our words and our actions. Our wants in our heart and our worship in our heart will always determine our words and our actions. It's always going to drive that. And so even if it's a good thing, if that good thing becomes a ruling want of your heart, then you're going to be willing to sin to get it. And so is it wrong to want a dating relationship if you're single, if you're married? Yes. Okay, If you're single, is it wrong? No. But what happens if I want it so badly that it doesn't matter who and it doesn't matter how and it doesn't matter what I have to compromise to get and keep that relationship? It's become a ruling desire. What you want is more important than what pleases the Lord. And so, yes, it is sinful. Now, is it a wrong desire for your husband or your wife to be more patient, more loving, more considerate, Guys, a better communicator. Is it wrong to want those things? Absolutely not wrong. In fact, that would be something that would please the Lord out of your husband or your wife. But if I don't get it and I demand it and I become sinful on my own part because they don't give it, it has become a ruling desire of my heart that is determining words and actions that are sinful. Is it wrong to want to be successful in your career path and in your schooling? No. You should work heartily under the Lord, not as man pleasers, but to please the Lord. You know, the the, the ones who are skillful in their labors will stand before kings. Or who are diligent in their labors, they'll stand before kings. It's not wrong to be the best we can possibly be at what God has put in front of us. In fact, it glorifies God. It's essential. But, when I will do what it takes in business and do what it takes for grades and and, and become a, a kind of person that you don't want to be around when things aren't going well, then it's become a ruling desire of my heart, and it is sinful. And so one of the ways you can diagnose this is, okay, I'm disappointed beyond normal disappointment. I'm massively disappointed over something that happened. Well, That means one of my hopes, my ultimate desires has failed me. What about worry? If you worry and worry and worry, not the normal worry, because there are some things in the world that, you know, that are worth you know, proper concern over, but you become sinfully obsessed and worry. Well, the thing that I desire most is threatened. And so my worry is going to point me backwards into to something like that. Or if I get really, really angry and really, really mad when anybody dares disrespect me or doesn't follow my rules or, or whatever, and I get bitter at every boss and my kids when they something's captured my heart, right? Uh, there's, there's some demand of respect that I want, and I'm, I'm not getting it. We do what we want because we worship what we worship, and we want what we, we do what we do because we want what we want, and worship what we worship, and whatever we worship will come out in our words, and will come out in our actions. We're going to see that play out in the life of a guy named Cain, who was radically Cain-centered, and you're not going to see him in your text is the funny thing, But he's the guy that kills the guy in the text that we're going to look at. And so uh, today we are going to go start back in in the book of Genesis where uh, this event happens. We'll be in Genesis chapter 4 for just a minute. And and we're going to see the background story that leads to Abel's commendation of faith. and and, and So I'm going to read that. But I first want to allay your fears. When it says faith is essential to life that pleases God, you're like, well, do I have enough faith? How do I work up my faith? Man, my faith doesn't seem to be quite big enough to, to like do this whole thing you're talking about. That's okay. Because it is not the size of our faith that determines a life pleasing to God. It's the object and the greatness of the one we have faith in that determines uh, whether or not our faith pleases God. And so our our faith is something that God gives us and stirs in us as we cultivate it and and grow it. And so it's not, can I work my faith up big enough? It's is my faith. Rock-solid anchored into the right thing, the right person. And so we, we get into this text, and it, and it talks about, uh, we've just gone through um, Adam and Eve, and, and, and there was a snake, and there was a fruit, and, and he says, you won't surely die. And they're like, you know, but God said I'll die, and you won't surely die. And they ate the fruit. Their eyes were open. They realized their own sin and nakedness before God. The bright, blazing light of God has met with the darkness inside of them. They hide. God judges them specifically uh, in the areas of their relationship, in the areas of their work, uh, but he also covers them with redemptive clothing by killing, making the first animal sacrifice and covering them. Then we get to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son, and she called him Cain, and, and, and said, last, the Lord has given me a man and so basically the, the, the one that's gonna come the the offspring of mine that's gonna undo everything we just made a mess of look I've got a got a son now and then she they they knew each other again and and the second child was born and his name was Abel and you know Cain he worked the ground he grew crops abel he uh, worked the sheep he he raised animals and they came and made an offering before the Lord And Cain made an offering of grain. Why? Because Cain grew grain. And then Abel made an offering that was a blood sacrifice. Why? Because he was so spiritual? No, because he raised animals that bleed when you sacrifice them. Right now, everything's fine. Like, we don't see a problem until we keep reading, and God accepts the offering of Abel, but God doesn't accept the offering of Cain, and now everything blows apart. So we've got to go back and look. Like, what's happened here? There's no instructions on offerings. There's no Leviticus yet. All there is is the the second generation of people, and they make a sacrifice. So if you look at the text, what, what could be the problem? Or what gives you a hint of the problem? Well, Cain came, and he brought some of the fruit of the ground. When you read it through the eyes of a rejected sacrifice, what does it sound like? Cain just gave something. Cain gave Maybe you'd call it the leftovers of his crop. He just gave some of it, nothing special about it. What did Abel bring? The firstborn and the fat portions. He brought the first of what he had, and he brought the best of what he had. That seems to be the difference. One is accepted. So why did they bring this kind of offering? Because they worship what they worship. We're going to see it track through because we're going to see words and actions that show heart. And so God has never desired sacrifice, but he's desired a contrite heart. He never has just wanted animal blood to run in the streets. He's always wanted the heart of a people that would worship him. And so we we find here in, in Cain all kinds of evidence that Cain has a worship problem. And the worship problem's name is Cain. Cain has a Cain-centered heart. And so Cain brings some of Cain's stuff to God and God should just be happy that Cain showed up. Shouldn't God just be happy that you showed up to church today? Isn't that enough? God or Cain was Cain-centered and he made a Cain-centered offering. God should be happy that I gave him anything. And you know, we think well God should just be happy that I have any you know, interest in him. As long as he gets some, right? As long as he gets a little of my life and a little of my time and a little, that should be enough for him and he should be delighted to have me on his team. But that's not quite the way it works. So Cain's Cain-centered heart makes a Cain-centered offering and and then how do we know something's wrong with Cain's heart? Well, when Cain's offering isn't accepted, how does Cain respond? He's furious and he's dejected. Like he's totally inconsolable and he's raging with anger. We know something's wrong with the heart of Cain because Cain is Cain-centered, making Cain-centered offering, thinking God should be lucky to have it. But God doesn't feel very lucky to have it. He says, I don't accept it. And Cain becomes enraged and he becomes dejected. And then look what God offers him. He offers him something and then he warns him of something. If you do well, won't I accept you? He's like, Cain, if you'll just humble yourself If you'll just take that Cain-centered heart and and turn it towards me, I would delight to accept your offering. It's not like God shut him out of the kingdom forever. God's like, come on, I'm here. I I will accept you. I want you. And yet Cain, in the logic of a Cain-centered heart, needs that next next part of the verse. And that's where he says, sin is crouching at your door. That is, picture like a lion that's kind of in a little bit of grass, pounced and ready or picture because this imagery works for me you walk around in south georgia and they have these things that rattle when you think of sin crouching at your door you think of this thing that rattles cocked back and ready and if you get close enough it will strike sin is poised to strike you at any time and what sin wants to do is enslave you and master you romans chapter 6 and here and what you must do is master your desires and appetites and temptations for sin. Well, in the Cain-centered world, with a Cain-centered heart that wants what Cain wants, as opposed to a God-centered heart that's like, yes, let me just come and bring a new offering with a new heart and a renewed perspective. Wouldn't that have been amazing? But in the Cain-centered heart and in the Christ-centered heart and in the You-centered heart, somehow, what is more logical than returning to the Lord in humility is plotting the murder of his brother. And that's the insanity of our heart when it's gripped by a sinful desire. Is it's willing to do anything to get what it wants. It's willing to do anything. to. I'll just get rid of him because he is acceptable. Because I can't stand looking at his acceptable himself. And it makes total sense in the heart of Cain to kill his brother. What sense does it make when you read Genesis 4? Zero. What sense does the sinful choices that you make that lead to more sinful choices that lead to more sinful choices make when you're sitting in church facing the glory of God? None. And yet we keep doing it because we want what we want and we worship what we worship and it is so hard to pry out of our hearts these rebel desires. And so that's what's going on in Cain. Uh, But what's going on in Abel? Well, let's flip back to Hebrews and let's see what's going on with Abel. Do we know anything about Abel's heart? What he wants? Yeah. How do we know it? Because he made an offering acceptable to God. What do we know about Abel from the text today? Abel is a man of faith, by faith he made an offering. His faith offering resulted in what? A commendation is righteous. So what do we know about Abel? He had a God-centered heart, not an Abel-centered heart. How do we know that? He made an offering to God of his first and best. Here's all of me, God. If I give you more and if you want more, I'll give you more. But here's what I got and it's the best of what I got. And if you'll take the best of what I got, I will continually offer you the best of what I got. God, here I am. And God receives that. And when God receives that, what does it say? God commends him. He testifies to him. Abel, you are a righteous man. The righteousness that comes by faith way back in the old law testament by his sacrifice by faith by a faith-given sacrifice abel is declared righteous by a faith offered sacrifice abel is declared righteous and i'm really hoping i'm using the right names because i mix these up in my head all the time like is it cain is it abel abel's the the good guy right so he offered this righteous he was commended his righteousness how was he commended his righteous god accepted his gifts God accepted his gifts and that's how we know all of this it's true he was he was commended because of his acceptance before God he had a heart that was God worshiping and the result was actions of a sacrifice that was God worshiping and the final de- declaration of God was righteousness and so Abel's offering still speaks he's dead but his testimony of righteousness by faith is not dead He's dead, but his testimony of a sacrifice is required for pleasing God and for for the grace of God to be righteous. That didn't die at all. That speaks to this very day. And you want to know how we know it speaks to the very day? If you wanted to turn to, to chapter 12, verse 24, you'd read something like this. In chapter 12, verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant... And to the sprinkled blood, look, that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel in faith looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, and he made his sacrifice, and it was the sacrifice that declared him righteous. And now, but it also bore witness to a better blood. It bore witness to a better sacrifice. What is the better blood and what is the better sacrifice? Not the one that we can make, no matter how good our offering is, no matter how much we want to offer the Lord. It would never be enough to forgive us. It would never be enough to be pleasing to God. You cannot please God. And so what happened? God offered a sacrifice for you of his best portion, of his firstborn. And that better sacrifice with better blood forgives you, makes you acceptable to God, adopts you into the family of God, and Cain's blood and Cain's sacrifice testifies to that. And Jesus' better blood comes, and it's a sacrifice on your behalf. Have you ever received the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Not that you were a good guy, not that you offered religious sacrifices, not that you did religious stuff. Have you ever come to the point, not where your church attendance meant anything in your relationship with God to get there, that is. Have you ever come to the place where all the serving and all the doing and being a nice person, have you ever come to the place where that's just not enough to please God? Have you ever come to the place where all your efforts and all your goodness are not enough? And has the Holy Spirit pricked your heart to show you your sin and separation from God? Has the Holy Spirit broken open your eyes so that you could see the glory of Jesus who lived a perfect life That you had to live to be acceptable, but you couldn't live, and so Jesus lived it for you. Has he ever opened your eyes to Jesus, the one who died on a cross for your sins, and not for your sins only, the sins of the whole world? Has he ever opened your eyes to that? And has he ever opened your eyes to the crucified one becoming the risen one by the glory of God the Father to vindicate every promise that he made of his salvation? Have you ever had your eyes opened to that? Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you? The blood of Abel shouts to you today about the better blood of Jesus that was offered for you today that you might turn and believe and become one of his righteous. Not because of your works, righteous because God declared it through the righteousness of Jesus. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Abel speaks of better blood. Or Abel's blood sacrifice and blood speaks of a better blood to come. And so we do what we do because we want what we want. And if you read this story and you think, well, this is easy. We don't even do sacrifices anymore, so I'm off the hook there. And I certainly am not really interested in murdering anybody, so I'm off the hook there. We do what we do because we want what we want is the inescapable point. What you worship and what you want will always show up in your words and it will always show up in your actions. So now all of a sudden there's a whole different perspective on the relationship challenges you face but there's also a whole different hope that the Holy Spirit can, allow, can empower you to please God. Right? You do what you do because you want what you want and you worship what you worship and so it's this whole different perspective on work and the boss, it's a whole different perspective on school I'm getting my third undergraduate degree currently. I'm actually working on two undergrads at the same time, meaning I have a high school senior who is dual enrolled, and I get to help with papers. I'm writing undergrad papers again. I helped write an undergrad English paper. Now, you know I'm a pastor with a master's degree, right? I'm a pastor with a master's degree writing undergraduate Georgia Southern English 1101 papers. And this lady had the audacity to give us an 80. That, uh uh-uh. Like I was purity steaming. Because I feel like I can write a better paper than that. I mean my daughter can write a better paper than that, right? <laughs> I have no clue why I'm here. But I'm here and we're just gonna, we're just gonna we're just gonna run with it. And so, you know, and my it's like, this is no, this is insane. This can't be happening. And I do what I do because I want what I want, and I worship what I worship, and it shows up in our life, and it shows up in our responses to, you know, getting the grade we thought we should get on a, on a paper, you know, after. You know, I write like five pages a day, six pages a week right here, and, and, and I'm going to respond to this lady not giving us the grade we thought. Maybe you have those professors like that, and you're like, I gave you better than that grade, Well, you're not controlled by the grades she gives you. You're controlled by, do I honor the Lord with how I respond to a hard professor, to a hard boss, to a hard circumstances? That's why I was there. We got back to it. I knew we would. All right. We do what we do because we want what we want. And so your problematic emotions and your problematic relationships are going to point you somewhere in your heart because God is gracious. He doesn't waste your pain. He's gracious and he's gonna use these relationships and he's gonna use these circumstances to make you look deeper and say, look, there's some stuff here that I wanna work on too, not just out there, right? And so, to to live a life pleasing God, it takes faith. It takes a God-centered heart instead of a me-centered heart to do all of this. And so I want you to hear the invitation of the Lord. Will I not accept you? Will I not accept you? But beware, sin wants you. And i invite you to be me. And so what I would encourage you is ask for faith. Ask for fresh faith. Let's look at the second step in this. By, by faith, we see a sacrifice that makes us righteous. By faith, or by it, we walk in a relationship to God while knowing he's working ultimate good. We walk in a relationship to God while knowing he's ultimate good. And so um, I'm sure everybody here has driven on this awful road called I-16, right? Most of us. Now, you drive on I-16, and you're going to see nothing for hours and hours and hours. And you're not going to go up a hill. You're not going to go down a hill. You're not going to look over and see the rolling foothills or mountains or any topography whatsoever out your window. But you know what you will see? Pine tree, 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 more pine trees and more pine trees for hours and for hours. And, and so when I drive it, you know, I'm, it's the good thing about I-16, now that I've dogged it a little bit. It is generally like, set your cruise control at the speed limit, 78, right? Okay, just making sure we all know the speed limit. If you are a teen driver, the speed limit, 68. If you are, you know, other people, 78. So you set that that cruise control, and you can kind of just zone out a little bit. It's boring anyways. This is the way Chris drives 78. I get in the left uh, 16, I get in the left lane, I hit the 78 cruise control, and I go and you know generally that works and there's not a lot going on around me and then occasionally there'll be a car in front of me now that car's going 78 too so i'm not getting closer and i'm not getting further away we're just there but chris doesn't like them just being there because chris can't really zone out when they're there i know that like they're not going to slam on the brakes but they could and 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 i know that i'm not getting any closer so we're fine but chris isn't happy with this so pop over in that right lane pass them get in front of them, get far enough away, slow back down, hit 78, hit cruise control, and Chris is cruising again. And then, you know, Chris is rolling in the, in the left lane, and 78's going, and then you see this car coming up behind you, and they're like at 110, right? You've seen this. And so I'm like, I'm going to do the polite thing. I'm going to get over into the right lane, because, you know, you let the faster people pass. If you don't, right, you need to repent and get over in the right lane and let the faster people pass. <laughs> okay, this is all life advice. This is all helping you. And so before I can get over, vroom, they get around me and they're off to the races. And I just thought this was such a great analogy of my walk with God. God's the pace car. He's, he's the pace car that should be saying the speed. And so often, I get behind him, and I'm like, God, speed up and give me what I want. Speed up and let's make something happen. Speed up and let's create a plan. Speed up and let me kind of go my own way and do some things I want for a while. And so, let me get around and go off on Chris's own way at Chris's own speed. But then there's other times, because Chris gets really lazy and really slow sometimes, and you probably do too, where it's like God's zooming and going somewhere, and I'm like... You know, okay. And I don't keep pace with him at all. And so I look out at the scenery of my Christian life, and it's boring. I look out at the scenery of my Christian life sometimes, and it's like this is the same thing after the same thing after the same thing. But I think what God would want and what faith would give me is a contentment for God to set the speed and the direction of my Christian life. The speed and the direction of what's in front of me. And I think the same would be true, and I know the same would be true as you, is if God is the pace car and he sets the speed and the direction of your Christian life, that's the life that's pleasing to him. And so let's look at it. As we jump into the text, we're going to see, after seeing the first murder, the first guy that was killed, we're going to see the first guy that never saw death, the only person in the lineage we're looking at to never see death. And so we'll be in Genesis chapter 5 for this. Now, if you remember, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, if we eat it, we'll die. Satan is like, you will not surely die. Well, who is true, God or Satan? God. And so in Genesis chapter 5, you get to this thing called a dusty, boring genealogy in the Old Testament. And you know you skip over it most of the time. And when you skip over it most of the time, you know what you skip is a boring, dusty genealogy that connects from Genesis chapter 5 to Matthew 1 to a person known as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Because you're reading in many of the genealogies of the Old Testament the tracing out of the the lineage of promise, the lineage that will lead from generation to generation to generation until the ultimate one comes. And so that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 5. Okay, is Abel going to deliver us by crushing the head of Satan? Nope, he's dead. Is Cain going to deliver us by crushing the head of Satan? Nope, he's a murderer. And so in Genesis chapter 5, the lineage of Adam and Eve continue, and they have a third son named Seth in the image and likeness of Adam. And so we have Seth come on the scene, and Seth is going to begin this genealogy that goes all the way up to Christ. So that's feature one. Read the the genealogies. Why? Because they're going to connect you forward into the promises. But then, is God true or Satan? God. Not a trick question. If you read Genesis chapter 5, you're going to find a repeated word. And he died, 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 and he died. Is God true to his word? Yes. If you eat it, you'll die. But then we meet a guy named Enoch, the only guy in the lineage that will not die. Because God will say in the midst of death, a new kind of life will be available too. And that's the kind of things we see when the pattern is broken, and Enoch is taken up without ever seeing death is that death is the result of the fall, but when you walk with God, a new kind of life is available. And so, and when we get to the story of Enoch, Enoch gets like four verses of the Bible. And yet, he's in the hall of faith. And so we get there, and we find that he's the father of a guy named Methuselah. If you want a fact, Methuselah lives to be the oldest of all the really old people in this lineage, he becomes the oldest one. He lives the longest. And so, fact one, but really the important fact about Enoch is what? Enoch walked with God. That is, Enoch had an intimate relationship with God that shaped everything about his life. That's what walk means. It is the pattern or habit of your life. And so what is true of Enoch is that Enoch walked so deeply with God in such a relationship with God that every area of Enoch's life was marked by his following of God. Enoch walked with God. And then what happened? No more Enoch. And if you look at the text in Hebrews it shows like nobody knew what happened. It says they searched for him, and the word is present. They kept searching for him, like, where's Daddy Enoch? We don't know. Where's Uncle Enoch? We don't know. And so this whole big family, after 300-and-something years of kids and grandkids and aunts and uncles, they're looking, they don't know where Enoch is. But we know where he is. He was not. Why? Because God took him. God transferred him from an earthly existence to a heavenly existence. But what's different? He did that without Enoch ever seeing death, like is the normal way we are promoted from earth to heaven. God just bypassed that process, transferred him to heaven. And so you fast forward back into Hebrews and you start dissecting what what has happened um, as he goes through it. It says... By faith, he was taken up. And so what do we know about Enoch? He is a faith guy. And so by faith, God took him. That is, God transferred him from earth to heaven. Why did he do that? So that Enoch would not see death. He would not experience the sting and bitterness of death, which is the way 99.99999% of every one of us will ever experience the end of our life is we will die. That's a normal way to get to heaven, but he didn't have that. And then we get a commentary on Enoch in here. And what, what is the commentary? Uh, it was, says that he, he, he should not see death and he was not found. That is, they looked for him and couldn't find him. Why? Because God took him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. If you, if, if you have different translations or if you remember back when we read Genesis 5, it says he walked with God. And so the Hebrew translation of the Bible translates it walk with God or has walk with God in there. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it has pleased God in there. And so since the author of Hebrews uses the Greek translation, that's the word he brings forth. And so what do we know about Enoch? He pleased God. What do we know about Enoch? He walked with God. He had a relationship with God that was so intimate that it shaped everything about his life. His words, his actions, his relationships, his responses. Everything about Enoch was defined by someone who walks with God. What else do we know about Enoch? He pleased God. The central driving question of Enoch's life was what? Does it honor the Lord? He was commended as one who pleased the Lord with his words and pleased the Lord with his actions. And so uh, he had a relationship with the Lord that pleased the the Lord in every area. And then there's one more thing we know about Enoch. If you read it further into the next verse, this is the universal principle we're going to get to. But what is true If you're going to draw near to God, it requires faith. So draw near is an abiding, worshiping, intimate relationship with the Lord that leads to a life that yearns to please the Lord. Are you honored by this decision? How can I honor you in this decision? That leads to a life that walks with God. A relationship that drives everything else about their life. And so here's one of the challenges I think you and I face. We have a faith life. And, and in this faith life, some of our faith lives are big and some of our faith lives are small, but it's over here. And so I have my church life in there, and I have my Sunday school in there, and you should have Sunday school. And, and I have my discipleship group life over there, and I have my campus ministry over there, and I have my micro group over there, and I've got this faith life. And I've got a personal quiet time that I do every day, but it's faith life. But that's over here. And then I have this thing called my real life. And in my real life, there's work, and there's bills. And there's relationships, and there's marriage, and there's friends, and there's kids, and that's real. And and, and so the problem is, is my faith life and my real life largely do not intersect each other. So no matter how big my faith life is and how important it is to me, I still kind of live in the real world my way, like this doesn't impact that. But you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ who forgave you of your sins. You have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that declared you righteous. You have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that adopted you into the family of God, and he would be your Lord over all of your life, and he would also be lovely as the desire of your life. He would be king, and he would be desired. And so this is what is true is we begin to be people that walk with God and please the Lord. We do that because we have a relationship with the Lord that says he's lovely and delightful and he is my king that gets to command my life. And he's my desire that I yearn to follow with my life. And both things are true. And that's what we see with Enoch. It's a relationship with God that made God his king and his desire at the same time. Lord and lovely. At the same time. And so that's what we see with Enoch. And so often that's not what we see with us. And then he closes it out with this statement. Enoch was commended as having pleased God. Well, what is true? You don't please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. And so if you want to live in intimacy with the Lord, if you want to live in an abiding relationship with Christ, you must believe. And then he gives two things. There could be more, but there's two he gives. You have to believe God is. That is, you have to believe God exists. And and, and what I think that is, why? Because it's kind of odd. Like You you just have to believe God is. So here's what I think that means. You have to believe God is who he says he is in this book. You have to believe God is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. He's like what he says he's like. I believe God exists, this God, not another one. You must believe that God is the way he says he is, and you must believe he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, it doesn't seem like following God pays off a lot of the time. Not that you're looking for it to pay off, I hope, but it doesn't seem like all this is true a lot of the times. It seems like my circumstances are true. It seems like my pain is true. It seems like my disappointment is true. It seems like my bills are true. But I don't know that it seems like this is true. So when it says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, what, it, what the word means is it pays. Meaning, in the end, it will all pay off to have sought the Lord as the desire of your heart, not something else. Something else may fill you for a moment and leave you empty. Following the Lord, no matter what it brings into your life, will pay off eternally. He's a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. And so is our desire to walk with like, I'm going to just kind of live in the world, and I'm going to do my faith thing, but then I'm going to do my life my way. I'm not going to let the two intersect, and so, you know, the world's pretty tempting, and there's a lot of good stuff that you can buy while still being a good Christian, and so it's like, I'll just live this way. Or maybe what you realize you're struggling with is, I'm going to have one foot in the world, and I'm going to do world stuff, And then I'm gonna have one foot in Christ and I'm gonna do Christ stuff and there's this continual pull in your life to go back and forth between the world and Christ, the world and Christ. What Enoch would say to you is that a faith that blazes true and right in the greatness of the glory of God is a faith that puts all of this together with Christ as Lord into a life that pleases him. So that I ask, what would honor the Lord? How can I honor the Lord in this let's close with a few practical things as we wrap up first what areas are you most prone to drift into self-centeredness what areas are you most prone to drift into self-centeredness here's the thing about a you-centered heart it will always always blind you the self-centered heart is the heart of cain that says murder makes more sense than sacrifice murder makes more sense than returning to the lord no, yours is and it's for you. And when that's true, anything goes. Anything that helps you get what you want is okay, and you can somehow make it make sense. I'm sure you've had experiences in your life where sin that you wouldn't have thought was possible becomes totally rational to you. Well, what has happened? Your heart has become consumed with you and not the Lord, at least in that area, and that's the areas I want you to look for, Because that area means that all my words and all my actions are going to flow out of that. And so what areas are you most prone to drift into self-centeredness? Secondly, if you were to look at your actions, words, and emotions, what do they point to as as some of the ruling desires of your heart? So if you were to just take a catalog of my words on a consistent basis, my actions on a consistent basis, and my emotions on a consistent basis, what would they put a big sign around in your life that says, This is a ruling desire. This has become the most important thing to you. This has become your idol. So just start tracing back thoughts and tracing back words, and you'll probably find some patterns there that connect over different areas of your life, and you'll probably find they point to something in your heart. In fact, I know that you'll find they point to something in your heart. What are some of the specific areas of your life that they point to? Last one. What internal and external changes would need to happen for you to walk more deeply with Christ? What internal and external changes would need to happen for you to walk more deeply with Christ? And so ultimately it is by faith that I see the glory of Christ and I desire to please Christ. But if you were to think about it, what are some of the, the attitudes that you have about God or beliefs you have about God that would need to go away? What are some of the sins that you kind of secretly like and want to keep that would keep you from following God? What are some of the habits and patterns of your life that would need to be gone for you to follow Christ and then positively? What are some of the habits and the patterns and the belief systems that are right about God that it would take for you to more fully follow Christ? Faith is essential to a life that pleases God. Faith is essential to a life that pleases God. Not great faith on your part, but faith in the greatness of the one who lived, died, and rose again. That's the one I want to invite you. Believe in that sacrifice and be righteous. That's the one I want to invite you. He is absolutely worth it all. Live in a relationship that dictates the whole life around the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we bow as those redeemed. We bow as those whom Jesus has lived and died and risen again for. And we bow as those who very easily slip from that to a lot of other stuff. Rescue us from us today, God. Pry those things we cling to out of our hearts and out of our hands and put you and put your son there instead. Oh, Father, we wanna walk with you, have a relationship with you that is so deep and so intimate that it shapes everything, not just the parts we've given you. And so, Father, take what we would not give you freely when we would give you just some of the leftovers. Take it all and give us yourself as the central treasure and prize of our life. Give us Yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God with all the church you could ever attend and all the religious service you could ever do. But faith in Jesus Christ alone will bring you from death to life. Faith in Jesus alone will take you from sinful to righteous because of his sacrifice, not yours. Have you ever done that? Come, let's pray together. Fill out the white sheet in your bulletin and let's talk about it. Do not let the spirits work in your life to draw you. Stop and disappear because you neglect it. Respond to the Lord. Maybe what you see is there's more self-centeredness than you thought inside your heart. There probably is. Maybe you've seen there's more drift in your life than you thought. There probably is. Maybe you've seen there's some sin you've just become comfortable with. There's a better sacrifice that would welcome you to the presence of God. Why don't you come and confess it? Why don't you come and ask God for fresh faith in him? Or maybe for you, it's time to make a tangible commitment to walking with God with all of your life and not just some of your life. Why don't you come up and just say, it's all yours, God. Take what I won't give you. I want you to have all of me. Let's stand and let's sing as you respond to the Lord.